Hello and welcome to another episode of the temporarily badly titled Beyond Busy podcast, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and defining happiness and success in a world where nobody's rushing around being busy, although you might be busy at home. Uh, my name is Graham Walcott, I'm your host for the show and on this episode I'm talking to the amazing Luai Al-Rumani. Um, Luai was the head of planning for one of the biggest banks in Syria during the war there and has written a book. It's called Lessons from a War Zone, How to Be a Resilient Leader in Times of Crisis. And really, some of the stories in the book are just so fascinating and insightful. And um, not that we can belittle what happened in Syria by even comparing it to what's going on right now. Uh, where our main job is to just stay in our houses and you don't have ISIS 20 minutes down the road like I did. But I think there are some real uh, lessons that you can transfer from one crisis to another. And um, there's just so much value in the book. And I shares a lot of that in this episode. So I think you're going to really get a lot from uh, this conversation. We're usually on a two-week cycle, as you probably know. And I just thought, as we recorded this, um, last week, I just thought we just need to get this out quickly. So um, this is out um, pretty much as soon as we could, as soon as we had a little break in the schedule. And the idea is that it helps people right now with things that you're dealing with right now, either in your business, in your personal life, at home. Yeah, we're obviously living through times which just makes us think about some of those much more fundamental questions in life. Um, you know, what our purpose is, what we're doing, what are the critical success factors in all of that, and just a lot of stuff that you're going to get into um, here during this episode. So let's get straight into it. I'll talk to you more at the end, but let's get straight into the conversation with Luai Al-Rumani. I'm here with Luai Al-Rumani, and um, we are recording this virtually via Zencaster. Um, Luai, how are you doing? I'm very good, very good at Graham, thanks cool. a lot um, for uh, hosting me. So where are you in the world right now? I'm in London now. I'm in central London, working uh, from home for, for the past uh, month or so. So you were the head of finance and planning for a bank called BBSF, uh, based in Syria. Um, and so you've written this just incredible uh, book that is just full of these little vin- vin- vignettes of uh, interesting stories, uh, and it's called "Lessons from a War Zone: How to Be Resilient, How to Be a, Resi- a Resilient Leader in Times of Crisis." So, I guess the first, most obvious question to ask you is, how has been? What's been your personal reaction to COVID nineteen, and have you noticed any difference in your personal reaction to it and that of the people around you, based on the fact mm. that you lived through the war in Syria yeah, in a, yeah. a very difficult role? Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, uh, I can uh, uh, start off by uh, saying uh, that, yes, the uh, context, uh, they are very uh, different. Uh, I mean, going through, through a war zone in uh, Syria and uh, going through uh, the COVID-19 in the UK and maybe elsewhere in the world, I mean, they're very different uh, triggers, a very different uh, context. But uh, uh, having uh, uh, said that, there are many resemblances, like, just like in uh, Syria, we felt that the crisis uh, almost came out of nowhere and systematically affected you know, everyone. And now, back then, it uh, affected the, uh, everyone within 
Syria. And now it's more more of a much wider circle. But there's that feeling of, you know, just a, you know, a gray cloud coming out of nowhere that no one had foreseen. Yeah. And so so this was probably something that I also felt happening now. And one other thing is really that, you know, a feeling of uncertainty, like just like the war back then when it first started, people had no idea when this would end, how this would really unfold. And same thing with uh, COVID, like, you know, people don't really know how how much longer this will last. Will it will it be a two day thing, a two week thing, a two month thing, a two two year thing? I mean, what are really the, the implications? So, I mean, there I mean, there is that common feeling of just having a lot of uncertainty and um, and one uh, you know interesting thing i noticed so so uh, so in the book i i mentioned that the perfect bar- barometer of 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 a crisis like i mean the early sign of a crisis really is seeing uh, cues of uh, people now in uh, syria which uh, which is a very caste-based society people uh, queued in a bank like i mean everyone was worried about their savings so the first uh, cues you would find were were at banks, uh, whereas you know in the UK, which is not a cash-based uh, society, people were queuing for for other reasons. So, so I mean that was you know interesting uh, to notice that early on people always panic and and people tend to queue. Yeah, yeah, and outside the businesses. So I mean, quite what it says about the UK that the biggest queues were for toilet roll yeah. in the early part of the crisis. Like, yeah. who knows? That seemed like a bit of a bonkers. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not really affected, but yeah. <laughs> but you do hear a lot of politicians talk about the 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 war analogy, right? So this is a war. We're at war. Um, you know, and and you get the sense that some politicians are actually quite enjoying being able to evoke. A sense of war but do you think that's crass or do you think there is genuine similarities okay yeah very interesting so so uh so i think i mean the uh the aim of these politicians uh, really is to like uh, i would think that they're uh, i mean by uh, by evoking that wartime you know sentiment the 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 aim is really to uh, to uh, to make people you know understand you know the the, the colossal challenges of this crisis so, so, uh, so I think it really depends, uh, you know, on the way it's being raised. Uh, if it's being raised to 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 evoke that feeling of that, you know, this is really a colossal challenge that will uh, uh, require all of us to really change the way we do things for 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 a short time, you know, and in order to beat this, then uh, then this could be could be a positive way way of uh, looking at it. But uh, you, you know, but if it's said in maybe in a defeatist way. And maybe, maybe in a way that uh, signals like a very negative, impending doom sort of feeling, then this could really backfire because, because uh, I think really the mindset is is uh, essential at the, the outset of uh, a crisis, and the overriding voice should be one that you know th- uh, that recognizes that uh, that that I mean yes, times will be tough. That recognizes yes, that yes, I mean it is very uh, attempting to fixate on the negatives, but one should, but one that should uh, also uh, always recognize that I mean regardless of the impending doom, things I mean we will be able to go through this, and that there are positives and and uh, opportunities to to be found uh, uh, even amidst the grim contexts. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. You talk a couple of times um, in different parts of the book about the idea of stress testing. Yes. And um, I really liked, there was this thing where you talked about how uh, it's possible, particularly in financial terms, in banking terms, to come up with lots of pretty graphs and models and Mm. Excel spreadsheets and and kind of model various different scenarios. But actually, that doesn't prepare you for actual stress. And so the way to stress test is to put the organization through, uh, you know, actual stress. And you talk about uh, the idea of if you worked in a shop and you, uh, you found a way to turn off the power to the shop for an afternoon how would the employees react to that would they shut the shop down would they find a way to still service their customers and and so on and so forth and i just wonder what your own reflections have been recently obviously you've been through this process of writing this book and and thinking a lot about uh your time in syria Mm -hmm. in a very stressful situation do you feel like you're personally more stress tested for for this scenario based on that and um yeah just really interested to hear your yeah, your sure. sort of personal reflections on that yeah so 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 i mean the thing about uh, stress uh, testing like i had uh, mentioned it in the book um, and i and i make sure that i caveat it by, by saying that one one should never just you know i mean uh, uh, stress test uh, everything haphazardly like you know you you don't need to overstress a system for for no reason, just for the for the uh, sake of it. But I mean, maybe maybe in our particular context, where we really operated in tough uh, times, uh, and we had, you know, lots of our systems were in constant uh, threat of being uh, stressed, and you know, in the most uh, radical way ever possible. And so uh, we realized that, you know, doing a lot of uh, model uh, modeling analysis, which which really builds on uh, historical uh, figures, which uh, which are extrapolated to the future, but when uh, the past doesn't really re- uh, resemble the future outlook anymore, then these uh, m- models don't necessarily work. So, so, uh, so in the book, I talk about you know instances where we actually found it useful to 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 actually test the systems and shock them and. Uh, in uh, uh, reality, to to really uh, prepare them more for for things uh, which might take place. So 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 uh, so I mean, one of the things we uh, talk about is hacking uh, our own IT department. I mean, they know you know this was you know this was becoming a real uh, threat. So 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 it was uh, better for us to do like a very strong friendly hack, test it. You know, I mean, ourselves. Um, I mean, this really enabled us to 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 identify anomalies and I, uh, identify weaknesses that maybe, I mean, regular uh, you know uh, textbook style uh, tests don't don't really uh, might not really identify for you. I mean, the the, the overriding you know idea was to, was to to somehow re- rewire our thinking from textbook rules to. To to thinking to do always to to do uh, the right thing always and not to do uh, things right so so maybe doing uh, things right would be abiding by certain textbook rules but but really when in a, in a context where where you no longer have this alignment between between uh, operational uh, realities uh, between 
policies and, and, uh, and procedures uh, and the challenges that you were facing, we we started to evolve our m- m- mindset to uh, to always get driven by doing the right thing, no matter what, even if it meant doing the things like hacking our own systems, you know, in order yeah. to really identify the vulnerabilities. Yeah, I want to talk about doing the right thing uh, versus doing things right in a minute. But just on that, you said something really is like a throwaway line in that whole section um, around the hacking thing. And it was to do with, I can't remember the exact wording you used, but the basic premise of it was that when you ask the IT department to stress test their own systems, there's like an inherent bias towards reassurance and that like everybody has a stake around that table to feel reassured because it's just easier yeah yeah and i i felt like i really learned something from that it was just like this little throwaway line in between the sort of main points you're making but i was like oh that's so interesting that you know we we're all biased in that way right yes yeah yeah so so uh, actually like uh, like i still uh sometimes find uh, myself uh, uh propelled to act uh, this way so 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 i mean there's this you know, I mean, people tend to be, you know, inherently, you know, re- reassuring. So when, and then the crisis, when, when managers will, you know, come bombarding people with you know, lots of the questions, seeking re- reassurances, uh, because they, I mean, they are pressured themselves from people even like, you know, more, more senior to them. People will feel that like the easiest way is to just you know, re, re, reassure uh, you know, and say that no, I mean things, uh, things are working. Don't worry. No, no, it's fine. I mean, have you really tested this? Yes. Don't worry. Things are fine. Yes, uh, I've seen this uh, thoroughly. So, so uh, yeah, and I did see this happening like you know a lot. And uh, when I uh, uh, say that, you know, I also felt myself doing it uh, a lot, uh, and even now. So, but uh, but now maybe I'm much more uh, mindful to it because 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 I've seen it happening a lot more you know in the past, and I've seen how. Maybe in a, a, a crisis, the uh, the implications could be more more uh, uh, significant than maybe in normal times. I've sort of uh, trained myself to be much more, you know, I mean, aware of it when it does uh, happen. And I was really struck by a couple of the stories about doing the right thing mm. uh, versus doing things right, particularly that pertain to different stories about banknotes. The sort of idea of people having fraudulent banknotes and then the idea of when there's a run on the bank everyone wants their money out and you know it becomes this sort of cat and mouse game of whether you can give people their their funds (laughs) or not so just tell us about that idea of doing the right thing versus doing things right so so i mean we had uh like you know back to uh, to what i was uh, saying uh, you know earlier that you know earlier i mean the one of the early signs of any crisis uh, usually would be would be a queue uh, in uh, Syria, people in the first two weeks actually started queuing queue, uh, outside the banks, wanting to withdraw their money. Uh, usually, businesses like queues uh, uh, of people lining outside their doors uh, before working hours, not so for banks. Uh, a long queue outside a bank usually spells trouble. Mm-hmm. And we were, you know, I mean, initially faced that uh, dilemma of banking. Like, I mean, we've seen banks uh, elsewhere in the world. You know, the, uh, this is not something new. A bank uh, run-on has uh, uh, happened for 
so many regions around the world. You've heard uh, stories about it from from Argentina, from Cyprus, uh, the Greece. Uh, triggers might be different, yes, but you know, I mean, eventually there is a queue of people. Uh, people want to withdraw their money. A decision needs to, to yeah. be uh, taken. Now, most- and if people think this is uh, some kind of um you know, tale from a, a far off land. I mean, it's worth remembering that here in the UK, Northern Rock had a run on in, I think it was maybe 2007, 2008, the early mm. part of the 2008 mm. crisis, yeah, right? Yeah, so, and there were pictures on the news, you know, if yeah. you're too young to remember this, okay, yeah. of people literally queuing outside the bank, yeah. wanting yeah, to go in at 9am and say, I want all my money yeah, out. I mean, yeah, this, yeah, is, yeah, this yeah, happened in happened. the UK as well. Yeah. So, so uh, back, I mean, what we did back then, uh, I mean, uh, we're not behavioral uh, scientists, uh, very far uh, uh, from that. But I mean, what, what we realized, you know, is that people are panicking. And just like, you know, I mean, if you're not uh, relaxed and I uh, tell you, hey, Abraham, relax, it's very unlikely to actually make you relax. So, so I mean, uh, telling people not to panic wouldn't really help them not uh, panic. I mean, they, if, you know, anything, they would maybe panic more. Uh, and uh, people were not, you know, uh, uh, queuing uh, to buy non-essential uh, goods. I mean, these people had their lifelong savings uh, with us. So, so it was uh, uh, something really dear and valuable to them. So, yeah, yeah. And to uh, somehow show them that we knew something uh, about the crisis that they uh, didn't know would maybe evoke this this feeling of, you know, a, a groundless sense of know-it-all, which people really hate the most in, in uh, 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 a crisis. So, so, so when you try to outsmart uh, people, like you know, in normal times, uh, they might uh, politely uh, uh, resist you. Whereas if you do it in in a time of uh, crisis, they might you know actually come to hate you, uh, especially when it revolves around something as uh, valuable as uh, as savings. So what yeah. uh, we did back then, we we actually went beyond. We we probably did uh, something. I mean, which which uh, which is not always, you know, in line with with with, uh, with our insurance uh, policies. We actually stacked banknotes. Uh, I mean, like you know, uh, across our windows, across our hotels. We wanted people to know that we had a lot of our money, and there was nothing uh, to hide. People uh, came in, no 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 matter what they wanted, we gave them uh, their money. I mean, we simply gave them what they wanted. There was no point in, you know, trying to to outsmart them, to delay them, to, you know, I mean, tell them not to uh, to panic. I mean, who, who, I mean, who are we to tell people not to panic? You know, I mean, this mm. is, you know, I mean, a crisis that's so much bigger than than everyone. You know, it really would have shown, you know, and 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 an arrogant sense that people don't really stand. So. Uh, we gave money. We, we gave uh, people what, what they wanted, and uh, and of course uh, we did uh, reassure them that they could come back to us when I mean I mean whenever they felt more and more comfortable to do so. And what uh, we realized happening is that uh, most other banks uh, started to do to to employ uh, techniques such as delaying uh, uh, withdrawals. Say you wanted a thousand pounds, they like I gave you two hundred now. And delayed uh, the others to like you know a few weeks later. But but I mean what this uh, did was really just let the people panic more, and uh, almost everyone persisted uh, until they took everything that, that they wanted. And what uh, happened like in the next few months, 
I mean, people started to, to bring money back to us. They they saw our stacked banknotes. They saw that we were not, you know, willing to to outsmart them, and that we basically gave them what they wanted. And uh, for us, this was doing the right thing, really. And uh, eventually, most uh, other uh, banks uh, had their uh, liquidity levels drop between the uh, required ratios, uh, whereas uh, ours dropped, you know, initially. Uh, and it did stay below before the uh, pre-war uh, levels. Uh, but a few months uh, later, it actually, you know, improved. And it was one of the best uh, liquidity ratios uh, across the country. Mm. So, so I mean, doing the right thing eventually pays off. And the other story was about people coming in with banknotes that were forgeries. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, the, uh, I mean, just a little, uh, you know, context uh, before. So, um, uh, usually in normal times, there there tends to be you know alignment uh, between laws, uh, between operational. Uh, challenges uh, between your uh, policies and uh, procedures. So, uh, not a lot of, uh, you know, uh, cases where where you might be inclined to have dilemmas or like really big uh, mm. trade-offs. But uh, what uh, happened in Syria uh, is that you know this was you know a, a crisis which uh, somehow just uh, 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 erupted a lot of these dilemmas. So, so on one end, the law told us that you needed to report. You know, anyone bringing in one dollar, which was uh, fraudulent. But in reality, we knew that many of these uh, people really weren't aware that these were uh, fraudulent. So, so, so you know, a decision had to be taken. Now, doing uh, uh, things right would have maybe meant that. I mean, we just, you know, I mean, adhere to the law, which is, you know, the more common sense uh, thing to do. But then we realized that you know there were certain instances where where we actually needed were were not you know abiding by that per particular regulation might have been the right thing to do. Mm. And so you end up in this. I mean, it's just such a an interesting dilemma because, like you say, I mean, usually there's such a a strong alignment between obeying the law and doing the right thing but actually if you know someone has just come back from the baker and they've just been given this one note as part of their change and they're trying to pay it in along with lots of legal notes yeah. they're not going to be a, a, a yes. you know a fraudulent criminal yes. yeah. but at the same time they're going to be treated in a very harsh way yeah yeah, yeah. you know yeah so yeah and so i mean and in both of those situations i wonder like what was the so you can look at those situations in hindsight and say that's a really smart piece of thinking that maybe is a little bit counterintuitive or goes goes against certain conventional wisdom, but it ends up being the right thing to do and the and the right way to act in the in that crisis. And you end up in both those scenarios building trust with customers, right? Which is a really important yeah. thing. Yes, but there yes. must have been loads of people. As you sat in in meetings, arguing for exactly the opposite, and like there must have been tension. So how, yeah, just describe that scene and how how did you how did you and other people manage to sort of advocate for things that did seem counterintuitive or controversial or a bit weird as as a decision to make, but 
you know, you had such belief in it, but other people didn't. How, how, do you, how did you persuade people in some of those situations? Yeah, I mean, like, there will uh, always be, you know, opposing uh, uh, camps. And, you know, I don't want to villainize, you know, one uh, camp over the uh, the other. But it's uh, actually uh, healthy to always, you know, have these these two uh, camps being, uh, you know, I mean, challenging each uh, other all the time because people view things uh, differently. Uh, priorities get shifted. And, and when you're... Uh, Talking about doing uh, the right thing, really, it uh, uh, becomes an, you know, an abstract, uh, almost uh, philosophical uh, notion that not not all people see see eye to eye. So, whereas you know, you, I mean, you and I might view you know, a certain th- thing to be the right thing to do. Someone else might not view it. And mm. uh, yes, there. Uh, I mean, there is that you know argument. There is that debate where, which might really, I mean, evolve into a. Uh, a philosophical debate, but really just having that conversation in the first place is really essential. And just, you know, every camp uh, presenting their, I mean, their own perspectives and and their own implications and really just uh, always keeping, uh, having like, you know, sight of the long-term uh, effect. Yeah. So, so yeah, maybe sending, you know, someone to jail, you know, over $1 might, you know, seem seem like doing things uh, right and and uh, safeguarding your uh, position now, but uh, but in the long term, um, like I mean, how does this you know affect trust? How does this you know I mean affect your relationship with with uh, customers? So so all of these uh, questions really need uh, to be asked and and uh, challenged, and it's not uh, easy, uh, like you know, at all. You know, lots of uh, dilemmas, and then for uh, bankers that are used to, to you know, abide by, by, by a certain law, by uh, policies, by um, uh, procedures, like almost everything is really uh, governed by 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 uh, an almost uh, uh, mechanical, systematic uh, 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 process. So it wasn't really easy factoring all of these in. Yeah, as anyone who's self-employed and tried to get a mortgage in the UK will tell you, right? (laughs) (laughs) Very, very stringent and uh, against any sort of notions of trust or uh, (laughs) anything like that. Um, One thing that really struck me was you talk about uh, how time changes and your perception of time changes during a war. And there was... This, you know, this whole interesting bit about in the early days of the war, all the questions around the meeting room table were, when is the war going to end? And mm-hmm. will the US intervene? And what's going to happen? And all this stuff. And then as you sort of got further into the war itself, you stopped asking those questions and time changed. And I was really expecting you to say that time changed in a way where you lived really day-to-day and hand-to-mouth. And actually, your conclusion was the opposite, that actually you take a much more long-term view. So do you want to tell us about why and 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 sort of how that developed? Because that, that just really fascinated me as something that I just would not have expected. So yes, uh, initially at the uh, outset uh, of the war, the most uh, tempting thing to do was to uh, engage uh, uh, in a lot of speculation on when the war uh, will end uh, uh, and how the crisis will uh, will be evolving. But I mean, this was nine years ago, and the uh, questions that we asked nine years ago initially 
I mean, even today, we we don't yet really have you know an answer to to to, to almost uh, all of them. Like, I mean, the war is uh, still not technically over there. So nine years ago, the questions that we did uh, uh, ask, no one really has the answer to uh, almost all of them. And with um, and we realized uh, uh, with time that this was really, I mean, a futile attempt to, to really formulate uh, our corporate uh, strategy and our uh, actions. That uh, it was uh, actually more uh, uh, useful to focus on the things that we do have control on. Uh, and ask a lot of uh, questions on, on these things rather uh, than on the things that we did not have uh, control on. So, so we started this uh, process of really uh, asking, like you know, in the bank, uh, regardless of whether uh, the war lasts for one day, one year, five years, or a hundred years, what are the critical success uh, factors of the, of this uh, industry? Like, uh, what does a bank need to do? needed to get right, regardless of, of the timeline of the war. And really, we reached the uh, con- conclusion that, that a bank needed to, to really excel at three things, uh, regardless of the timeline of the war. So, so uh, you know, a bank needed to have the trust of, uh, of the people, and maybe more so in uh, times of war. Um, and yes, war, war is epically this but you know even uh, a war as uh, the horrendous you know as the war in Syria doesn't necessarily destroy an industry's uh, uh, dynamics so so yes uh, the, the bankable population has uh, decreased but I mean people with banking needs that could use our services will still cherish trust so 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 we sort of shifted our mindset to from you know uh, asking uh, the questions on things which we which we had no control on to really uh, uh, you know uh, asking questions on things which uh, which you know enabled us uh, to take an immediate uh, action to uh, to uh, act uh, upon them so so uh, we realized that we needed to really act on you know i mean always uh, ensure that that uh, that we uh, upheld uh, uh, trust that we we were uh, we always uh, had the cheapest uh, cost of fund and that we were always uh, liquid so, so so i mean just really you know arriving at to to that conclusion of these uh, three things which we need uh, to do regardless of when the war will end really re- really helped us and sort of liberated us from uh, you know from sort of uh, you know sinking into abyss and just uh, getting uh, swept away by, by that uh, feeling of general disbelief uh, and uh, and uncertainty. Uh, uh, so going back to your uh, uh, question, you know about the long term, you know I, I don't think that what you said, like like, like from uh, focusing on day to day activities, contradicts with uh, with having a long term. Mm. But what uh, what I try to say in the book is that. The long term should shape your your uh, actions today, uh, and not the other way way around. Because you know, I mean, if you don't think think about the long term, if you're not really driven by that long term vision, then what you do on a daily basis might end up, you know, shaping your long term uh, vision. Because it would it would just you know, I mean, uh, evolve into a matter of fact. Whereas by by engaging initially at the outset in this long term. 
uh, you know, thinking approach, uh, and then you know, uh, agreeing uh, on the things which uh, you need to uh, focus on. Then letting uh, all of this shape your 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 actions uh, today. So, so uh, this was really the uh, the mode of, of uh, thinking that I was uh, talking uh, 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 about in uh, in the book, uh, and I mentioned as well in the chapter on uh, situational leadership that one of the most important traits is to always be strategic yet uh, on the ground, and it's very difficult to do so. And I mentioned, you know, an example of of a mistake which which uh, I did uh, in the bank uh, because uh, I was not so uh, uh, close to the ground. Uh, uh, it's about the time that that, uh, that I was uh, asked to do certain studies on uh, cash counting and, and the time it took. And uh, just like maybe you would make uh, an assumption that that one million uh, pound, uh, like you know, uh, withdrawal of one million pounds would uh, would come uh, price of uh, banknotes of fifty pounds. Uh, I did uh, the same thing. With with uh, with you know uh, assuming a certain parameters for for let's say a withdrawal of a million Syrian pounds, the highest banknote was two thousand pounds. So so you know I assumed there were you know it was uh, mostly two thousand pounds. But uh, later uh, later on I learned that you know in the you know in uh, reality even the most junior teller knew that the two thousand pounds were uh, were were actually rare now uh, and that most uh, banknotes being circulated uh, uh, were were actually of the 200 Syrian pound banknote, which which meant that you had much more money uh, to count. Right. So really rendering my my study to be somehow abusive. So so this was you know I mean a point uh, you know which which really like you know influenced me and just really reinforced that feeling of being yes being strategic yet not losing sight of the realities uh, happening on the ground. And that's one of those challenges that, you know, all kinds of leaders in all kinds of industries face, right? You know, you're, you're pressured the higher up the chain you go to be more and more strategic and more and more high level in your thinking. And yet that automatically means spending less time at the coalface, less time really thinking about those grounded realities. Did you, did you, did you learn anything about how to square that circle or how to how to sort of link the two together yeah well well i mean it is very uh, tough i mean just like you uh, you're saying uh, man really the way uh, the way i see it, there isn't really like a very clear you know formulaic you know answer uh, to that really people should get both things uh, right both uh, planning and uh, execution like i mean both things matter in uh, a crisis now, 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 it, it, uh, um, and the challenge uh, becomes you know even more colossal because as as uh, things really become much more uh, difficult on, on the ground, it really becomes you know easier to think along the lines of of not doing the dirty work or you know I mean keeping it to I mean leaving it to uh, someone else. And uh, then again, you know, there's that uh, other side where. Where I mean, you have so much daily challenges happening, and you're sort of in this fire-fighting mode that you find yourself really, I mean, unable to take that step back to really, to really think, uh, think about the, you know, long term. So, so uh, yeah, it is a very uh, difficult uh, dilemma. 
And I uh, uh, don't, uh, don't think that to a trade-off is like, you know, easily uh, managed. But, uh, but, uh, uh, but I do think that, you know, I mean, it is one that one should be mindful of and just, you know, I mean, keeping it you know, at the back of their mind that one should, you know, never lose sight of the, of the long-term strategy, but, you know, at the same time, not, not to get sort of drowned by the daily distressing uh, challenges uh, on the ground. So this thing about the critical success factors, and so you talked about, obviously, a bank needs trust, a bank needs liquidity, so, you know, basically a, a high level of cash that you can do things with, and then the cost of capital, so how much you have to pay an interest to yeah, get yeah, money in. Yeah. And so those are like the three critical success factors. So I wanted to just ask you a couple of things about that. The first question was, um, I was quite, and you talk about it in the book, but I was quite surprised that profit was not one of the three critical success factors. So tell us about that. So yes, I mean, we were, you know, inclined, uh, we were, sorry, tempted to, to maybe t- take certain uh, decisions to uh, improve uh, our profitability in the short run, such as uh, increasing rates on deposits. But yes, I mean, that could uh, improve certain short-term targets. But I mean, that would uh, erode uh, our customer base. That would mean that, you know, I mean, in the long term, people might n- not come uh, to us with their uh, deposits. It might mean that we we end up losing some of liquidity, and uh, we really saw this happening with you know other banks uh, that did uh, employ certain techniques to to uh, uh, fulfill short-term profitability targets that maybe gave them a cause for for celebration, but but in the long run it sort of crippled their 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 ability to really compete competitively because what happened a year later is that they 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 ended up losing a large portion of their customers their deposits were shrinking they had lower liquidity lower cost a higher cost of deposits meaning that they were far less positioned uh, in a, a place to, to be able to really compete uh, effectively with us, whereas uh, our uh, outlook was uh, different. Yes, I mean, maintain uh, liquidity levels uh, even if we do lose, maybe uh, uh, you know, or make uh, less money this year. But you know, in the long term, it will uh, end up being uh, an hour. Uh, in the uh, long term, it would end up being uh, actually better for us. So. So really, like you know, I mean, assessing the long-term uh, effect uh, of any uh, the action took precedence uh, over the uh, short-term, you know, effect, uh, and uh, it is a very hard thing to do because I mean, people and like stakeholders, and maybe more so in a, a crisis, many stakeholders will be under uh, uh, pressure to really. Uh, improve profitability in the short run uh, without scrutinizing at all times the real uh, you know, effects of these decisions uh, in the long run. Whereas uh, with us, we, we, we really ensured that, that everything we did should stem from understanding the long-term effects of those the decisions. Uh, and really uh, having these shape uh, our uh, goals, uh, even if it meant that 
that uh, in a certain year we lost uh, some money, but uh, we knew that the decisions taken in uh, that year would build a capacity to to generate maybe even more money in the next two or three or four years. I always feel there needs to be some kind of incentivization for leaders to think in a more long-term way, right? Because the whole system mm-hmm. is set up yeah. with shareholders demanding dividends and with leaders needing to make their mark or be seen to be getting results. And often that just increases the short-term mm-hmm. is thinking. And it's exactly the same in government, right? It's like you want to try and get elected again in four years' time and you don't really care if that means yeah. you know, mortgaging the whole country for 20, 30, yeah. 40 years down the line yeah. and stuff. And I, I just, yeah, like, I don't know what the answer is, but I just, I think that there needs to be more of a, a bit like the Nobel Peace Prize or something, like there needs to be some kind of recognition of the things that uh, people do yeah. that yeah. are maybe quite selfless or even put the organization in a slightly less favorable short-term position but like it's an honorable thing to do yeah yeah i mean like uh, like i do like i do uh, agree uh, the, this is really like like a really big uh, dilemma and it uh, yeah just like you're you're saying it uh, not only you know affects uh, businesses but i mean organizations uh, uh, governments lots of entities uh, really that that uh, sort of gap between like i mean short-term and long-term and really aligning you know, long-term goals with with benefits. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so I mean, uh, just like you're you're saying, I mean, uh, businesses uh, uh, usually have lots of uh, metrics, and leaders are sort of you know assessed by by being able to achieve these uh, m- metrics. Now, the problem you know is, uh, uh, and I do like you know acknowledge this this uh, challenge. You know, in the book, when when a certain board of directors say that. You know, I mean, we uh, like uh, profitability does not take precedence uh, this year. You know, this uh, might be an occasion for for uh, for some people to slack, but uh, but really it shouldn't. Like, you know, the absence of of certain profitability metrics, or maybe relying less on them, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that. I mean, there there won't be any metrics uh, against which leaders are being uh, assessed uh, against. Yes, there there should be metrics, but these should be now linked to these uh, long-term goals and uh, vision. So so uh, let's say if now making less of a profit is less less of a metric now, then then the challenge really uh, becomes now trying to come up with these m- metrics that really measure how well the business or organization is doing vis-a-vis full, f- filling these long-term goals that, uh, that are not necessarily linked to, to short-term uh, profit. Uh, it is a very hard thing, but but uh, but I think just being uh, mindful of it uh, and just, you know, I mean, starting the conversation there could could be, could be a first step for, for an organization to, to, to ensure that what it does uh, today and the system by which it, it, it measures its uh, uh, success really aligns uh, with its uh, long-term vision. For sure. Um, there's so much more in the book that I could talk to you about. Um, I just wanted to ask you a couple of other questions, yeah. though. So let's just bring things back to COVID-19 mm-hmm. and the present day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we've, we've talked on a few things already that hopefully give people a lot of food for thought. And I certainly was just sat there reading the book, um, 
almost thinking, okay, this can apply to my business right now. And yeah. this is the, that's useful. Yeah. I'll think about it in that way. But if you're someone right now listening to this who's maybe on furlough from a company or working from home and everything seems a bit, um, you know, it's kind of business as usual, but not business as usual. What are some of the other lessons just from your time in in Syria that you think, you know, can really help people in, in the current situation? Well, I mean, uh, 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 what I uh, uh, definitely won't say is that, you know, a crisis is an, uh, is an opportunity in uh, this uh, case, like, you know, this is what many motivational, you know, people might sometimes do. Uh, and I've uh, worked in a crisis, and I've, um, and I don't think uh, I know anyone that uh, that's uh, ever enjoyed working in such, you know, a crisis uh, as uh, the one in uh, Syria. So, 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 so I really won't be belittling the 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 you know effect of the the uh, crisis. Yes, I mean things yeah. might be hard now. I mean, let's like you know acknowledge that yes, we are we are adjusting to a new normal. Yes, things are tough. Yes, uh, it will be so much uh, easier to to focus on all the negatives. But uh, what I've learned is really to not let that uh, feeling of um, uh, pending doom somehow rain in because it uh, becomes so uh, easy for that you know feeling of of negativity to somehow you know engulf one's uh, mindset. And then they just uh, stop thinking, uh, you know, about uh, the positives and the opportunities that can be uh, maybe sought and uh, not sought, you know, I mean, because of the uh, crisis, but more in spite of the crisis. So um, my key message would be along the lines of never to let that feeling of um, uh, pending doom really rain in. If we were uh, able to find the uh, positives and the uh, opportunities, in one of the most difficult circumstances, you know, I mean, in the world, uh, I'm sure if you, if, if, if someone else, you know, I mean, in a certain, in a different uh, context, just thinks uh, along those lines, some uh, positives could it be sought. Yeah, and just one uh, last thing. I mean, remember that that almost everything in life is temporary. So, guess I mean, this has gone on for uh, I don't know a couple of months now. But this uh, will pass. This uh, will pass, and uh, and one thing which which really helped me back then in uh, uh, Syria, and and uh, really, I mean, I mean, this was the overriding message back then. You know, everyone uh, would say, you know what, we'll just play the waiting game. We'll just wait. But but then with uh, time, I uh, realized that this was really a flawed way of seeing uh, th- things. Because when you're just waiting, you're you're somehow being passive with what's going on now. You're just you know not doing uh, anything, waiting for uh, the next phase to happen. Now, now in Syria, like we thought that you know hopefully the whole thing would be would be over in three months, but but it's been nine year, years now, and it's not uh, over yet. So 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 I don't think it would be healthy for one to be to get somehow stuck in the mindset of just waiting it out. No, I mean, you know, this is a phase, you know, it has its uh, negatives, uh, you know, of course, but uh, if you do try to seek opportunities and the positives, no matter what, there are maybe things which you could do today to generate value. I mean, I mean, on a personal level or on a business level. So not really to get 
in the, the mindset of uh, waiting it out. And there's a couple of other things I just wanted to finish with that I thought were quite inspiring. There was a thing that you talk about in the book about nobility. And yeah. you tell this story about giving the employees of rival banks a mm, lift home. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, tell me about your thoughts on nobility in times of crisis and why that's more important than ever. Okay, so I mean, I do uh, realize that that, uh, that I'm not a, a behavioral scientist or a sociologist, but what we have realized is that in times of uh, crisis, uh, people start to maybe pause uh, uh, a less selfless, you know, approach uh, towards life. So, so everyone's really thinking uh, about their own, and uh, everyone's really motivated by their their own needs because because it just you know i mean seems like the the, the right thing to do uh, and so people will will you know exhibit you know noble acts far less maybe than normal times and what we've uh, realized you know is that uh, nobility doesn't really need to be expensive uh, doesn't really need to be you know a lavish thing which you can do and that people will really uh, remember what came, you know, out of you in the darkest uh, of times. So, so, so in the bank, yes, uh, we did have a certain uh, buses where uh, we did uh, use them to transport uh, our staff. So, so when we did have space in our buses, we did uh, decide to take on staff of rival banks. So the, this didn't really. You know, affect our competitiveness. It, it, it just seemed like like uh, the right thing to do. And um, you, you know, again, I mean, you, I mean, uh, an organization can do you know any sort of a branding exercises, try to release uh, you know a lot of you know issue a lot of uh, press uh, releases saying uh, what it uh, like actually stands for, trying to. Uh, relay certain messages, you know, on it. But you know, at the end of the, of the day, uh, action speaks louder than words, and people will remember you more for what you did in the darkest of in the darkest of, uh, of times. And uh, and in the book, I mentioned, uh, you know, something about uh, there's a chapter called "Do More and uh, Speak Less." So uh, what I realized you know is that most of the literature of uh, crisis management tends to focus on uh, on the importance of crisis communication which is vital yes but uh, what we have realized you know is that what is maybe even more important is is uh, actually getting things done and doing things and and uh, making sure that that your uh, actions really fulfill the messages that you are trying to to relay so in English, it's said that you know a crisis uh, that sorry talk is cheap. What we realized, you know, is that in, in a crisis talk becomes even cheaper, and it, uh, people realize that. And what really stands out eventually is the actions that you've done. Yeah, and I love the thing in that story how because obviously travel, you know, oil prices were disrupted, travels disrupted. It becomes more and more difficult for the employees of your bank and other banks to be able to make it home. Yeah. But I love the idea that you then had this sort of contagion effect where the other banks yes. were yeah. finding it embarrassing. Yeah. And so they started yeah. laying on their own buses yeah. as well. And, and then you have like all these employees of the other banks that suddenly want to 
move to your bank and work for you. So it it not only is is that an act of kindness, but it's also something that strategically pays off yes, yeah, for you as well, yeah, which I really like. Yeah, yes, yes. Um, and we can't finish without talking about um, the poems, <laughs> so the, the story, the story about. Um, so, well, you can tell the story about uh, having to to get people's belongings out of the bank because ISIS were, <laughs> were yeah. taking so, over the bank, and the, and then what the reaction was of some of those customers. So, there's a city called Deir Zor, and it's a city on, on the Euphrates, and it's. Uh, closer uh, actually to the Iraqi borders than it is to uh, Damascus. And a few years, uh, a couple of years into uh, the war, it, it uh, became under uh, siege. And uh, there were uh, terrorist, uh, jihadist uh, uh, groups uh, come, I mean, getting closer and closer to to the center of the city where where there were many other uh, banks uh, like i mean besides the people uh, uh, obviously actually living there there was the 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 issue of banks and their valuables and uh, we had safe deposit boxes where people would store their valuables in and uh, I'm not really, really allowed to get into a lot of uh, details on the actual, like, you know, I mean, uh, operation, but we did <laughs> something, uh, you know, that is not, that, you know, I can, you know, assure you that's not, that, uh, that would never be covered in any insurance policy in the world. <laughs> we managed to, yeah, but, but just to uh, uh, clarify that, you know, uh, after all of the staff had been uh, moved out, we managed to transport the safety deposit boxes from that city to uh, Damascus, and that's when, uh, and after like, you know, a few days, the the, the, the uh, jihadists uh, actually ended up storming the bank, and there's uh, actually a video on uh, YouTube uh, where where you can see these uh, jihadist uh, groups uh, actually demolishing uh, the bank uh, and all the uh, surrounding uh, buildings. So <laughs> what uh, we did in uh, uh, Damascus, we actually called up our uh, customers, and to their pleasant surprise, we we told them that their safe, that their valuables were uh, were actually saved uh, and that they can be picked up from Damascus. So uh, the people of uh, the resort there, they uh, many of them come uh, from a, from uh, from a Bedouin Arab heritage, and uh, what these uh, Bedouin uh, Arabs have been renowned for for the past two thousand years is poems. So so I mean two thousand uh, years ago, if they were happy with someone, they would really gift them with like a poem. Uh, and even now, this gifting of of poem is a very strong part of their tradition. So, so we were gifted by poems, Bedouin Arab poems, uh, and we uh, uh, framed them uh, across the uh, corridors, you know, of our bank. So, so people like, you know, I mean, generally don't like banks, let, let, uh, let alone in a crisis. Yeah. But, you, you know, doing these small things, which, which really to us were, I mean, the right things uh, to do, you know, allowed us to to maybe like uh, maybe uh, this was the best uh, metric. You know, out of uh, you know uh, you know uh, out of uh, all of the other uh, b- banking and uh, profitability and uh, return on equity metrics, just uh, how many poems did we get from the the part of Syria? Yeah, and I love this one. Um, uh, 
that, that's in the book. Yeah. I'll, I'll just read it out. Um, so it says, as the dark night dawned on us, the wolf's fangs emerged. We conceded the loss of our money, blessings, and belongings. We prayed to God for a loving helping hand. And we were saved by the chivalrous heroes of Bank Bumo. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I mean, that is one of those things that uh, yeah. I'm sure will I'm sure will stay with you forever. But yeah. it's just very powerful yeah, to yeah, it is, and then, uh, to read. Yeah, yeah, it is a, and the way it's like, and uh, maybe if you, I mean, you know, if uh, if uh, someone was able to read it in Arabic, uh, it's even much more uh, powerful because it really like resonates with this, you know, Arab Bedouin tradition of poetry. Yeah, and there's a like a very strong rhythm to it. Wow. So yeah, would it be would it be okay if I read it in Arabic now? Sure. Yeah, I'd love yeah. to hear it. Wow. That's cool. Yeah, you could just feel the rhythm to it, right? <laughs> um, so let's just finish. So, so the book is called Lessons from a War Zone. Yes. How to be a resilient leader in times of crisis. Um, it's obviously a very, very timely book. Um, and uh, I'm sure you'll have a lot of interest in it. Where can people find out more? Where can people connect with you? Just uh, uh, tell us how people can connect. Yeah, sure. So so uh, the book is uh, published by Penguin uh, UK. And they can buy it from uh, Amazon, from Waters, uh, Tones. And they can uh, connect uh, with me on uh, Instagram. My handle is Dwai Al Romani, just uh, one word, uh, my whole name, and on uh, Twitter as well. Cool. And we'll put all that in uh, as links in the show notes as well, so people can go and um, and find the links there and uh, uh, get some more information. Uh, what are your plans for the rest of the t- rest of today? Uh, just uh, working uh, from home, cooking. Um, I'm uh, doing lots of uh, cooking uh, these days. It's uh, experimenting with with uh, so many uh, different uh, kinds of meals. So yeah, cooking and uh, working from home. Nice. I'm still I'm still cooking my very limited range of meals. Yeah. I think I need to <laughs> use this time <laughs> to maybe. inevitably learn some more dishes. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yeah. Great. Uh, well, really fascinating to chat, Thank and I it. can't recommend the book highly enough. So, um, yeah, people go out and, and get a copy of this book, and uh, I, it, it will it will teach you many things. But yeah, thanks so much, Lua, for being you. on Beyond Busy. It's been a, the, a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks a lot. So thanks again to Luai for being on the show. Thanks also to Mark Stedman, my producer on the show, and also to Think Productive, our sponsors for the show. Think Productive are poised to help you with all kinds of productivity training. Uh, We have some courses particularly geared around the current situation. We've got one called the Productivity Ninja's Guide to Working from Home. We've got one called Leading Remote Teams and one called Supercharge Your Virtual Meetings, as well as being able to do all of our normal stuff, how to be a productivity ninja and fixing meetings and getting your inbox to zero. We can do all of that on Zoom and, uh, in fact, on whatever software you have in your business as well. So if that's of interest, go to thinkproductive.com and find out more. And there's a load of free resources if you are working from home at thinkproductive.com forward slash WFH, if that's 
something that might be helpful to you right now, um, just free stuff, go get it. And I uh, would love to talk to you more about uh, your productivity uh, challenges and how we can help and all that stuff. So, um, so shout out to Think Productive and the amazing team around the world continuing to deliver this work. So a couple of other things I want to say is I just launched a new website. I mentioned this last week as well. Um, it's at grahamalcott.com. It's got a contact form on there. It's got my new email newsletter on there. And I'd love you to sign up. We're doing the Sunday Blues Buster email. So every Sunday evening, just some thoughts for the week ahead. Uh, just a little bit of positivity to land in your inbox either before the week starts or maybe read it Monday morning on your way into work between the living room and the kitchen. <laughs> but uh, the idea is just to give you some uh, some positivity, some thoughts from me. And it's the first time ever that I've had my own email mailing list. So there is one for Think Productive, um, which talks about all the workshops and everything else. But this is the first time I've had my own mailing list to tell you about the podcast, to, to tell you about when I'm speaking and other things I'm doing, and, and just really to uh, provide kind of thoughts and um you know really part of the the motivation for me is uh to sort of not only to build my own platform but to build a conversation and to uh give myself that discipline of every week having to write something and get it out there in the world so that's the plan would love you to sign up the more people that sign up the more pressure i'll feel probably to, to get stuff out so um yeah if you if you'd love to hear from me more and um have something regularly on a sunday just graymorecott.com and uh you can sign up on pretty much every page of the site, you'll find the little boxes at the bottom that will sign you up to that mailing list. So I think that's it for this week's show. And the other thing I was going to mention is, I, again, I talked about this last week. Um, I did this blog post all about the experiences that my autistic son is having in this uh, sort of corona, quieter, slower world that we're all living in. And uh, it's called Tales from Holland autism, corona, and all of us. And um, that's on Medium and on LinkedIn. I'd love you to go check that out. We'll put a link in the show notes at getbeyondbusy.com. And if you go there, you'll find all those links, plus links to all the previous episodes and lots more. So go to getbeyondbusy.com if you want to find out more. And um, aside from that, the only other thing to say is that uh, we'll be um, alternating between our normal two-week schedule and then just putting out, if we've got relevant stuff to put out more quickly, we'll just use the odd weeks to put out extra episodes as well. So um, stay subscribed. If you haven't subscribed yet, uh, go and hit the subscribe button on your podcast software. And uh, that will just mean that every time a new episode comes out, we will let you know. And we'll see you either in a week or in two weeks with another, another episode. So until then, I hope everything is okay in your world. Um, it feels like the cliche these days is to sign off with saying stay safe, but um, it's a cliche because it's true, right? So uh, just hope everything's okay with you and yours. And we'll see you in a week or two for another episode. Until then, take care. Bye for now. Bye.